Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. This week, we have Parth Kotak, a staff writer for the academic section, to talk to us about some issues that students have been having in the Corcoran School of the Arts and Design. And this is not the first time that Corcoran has faced controversy over the way they've handled some issues, but Parth is here to talk to us a little bit about some of the issues they're having with faculty and with their classes. Can you just tell us a little bit about why students are so frustrated? When I was interviewing students for this story, the three major complaints that I heard were that they weren't being offered the classes they needed to graduate, and they weren't learning what they needed from those classes in order to do well in their fields. Another problem was the number of -of out-of-pocket costs that they had to pay for their projects. And the third major complaint was a feeling of alienation from other students on campus. And going to your first point, what is the issue with classes? So what happened was when Corcoran merged with the Columbian College, they started to be subject to the class minimums, and so classes wouldn't make unless there were a minimum number of students enrolled in those classes. The problem is that Corcoran is so small that a lot of those classes don't fill up even if they're core classes for the major. And so administration at Corcoran had announced to students via email that they would begin cross-listing those courses with the Columbian College. And so Columbian College students could start taking those core classes in Corcoran. And Corcoran students were concerned that if Columbian students were able to enroll in their classes, the quality of instruction would go down because professors would have to teach to students who weren't necessarily entirely art-focused. But the university, in response to a lot of Corcoran students' outrage over the move, decided not to cross-list the classes eventually. So now that the classes haven't been cross-listed, does that make it a lot better for students? Well, the, the problem still stands that there are too few students in all the classes, and so somehow the university is going to have to resolve the number of students with the policies in Columbian, that there have to be a certain number of students in each class. Why are things so expensive for students in their projects? A lot of it stems with the equipment needed for a lot of these projects that aren't included in the cost of tuition. So, for example, I talked with one student who decided to remain anonymous, and she said that she had to purchase a $300 camera for a specific project and had to purchase $400 of film and paper for two of her finals. She said that she spent $100 on film only for the film to be rendered unusable because she tried to develop it using GW's equipment, and GW's equipment failed. And these costs aren't included in in tuition. And so students aren't expecting to have to pay that. Right. And... They already have to pay higher tuition than they had to in the past because in the past, Corcoran's tuition was roughly $17,000 cheaper per year than um, before it merged with the Columbian College. Another complaint that I heard was that they have to take all these GPAC classes and they don't really have anything to do with getting an arts degree. Can you talk a little bit more about students feeling isolated? That's something that is harder to quantify, but what did you hear from students? Mm -hmm. Students felt isolated at Corcoran, both by their classmates in other schools at GW and also by the administration, GW administration and Corcoran's administration. So I talked to one student who said that she felt like she was belittled by her Elliott and Columbian College classmates whenever she told them that she was a photo major, for example. There are also, with regards to administration, I heard some students say that the administration likes to pay lip service to caring about their issues and not necessarily actually dealing with the issues that they bring up. They feel like they have to be their own advocates because they don't, no one else is looking out for them. And how have they been advocating for these kinds of issues throughout the year? 
One thing that I've heard is that the university set up town halls and they invite the deans to to come to the town hall and and that that town hall forum is where they voiced their complaints about cross-listing classes, and ultimately they got that decision pushed back. So it, it's not that no one knows about these problems, it's just that they feel like they are not being listened to. Right. And this is kind of another controversy that's come up this year. Last semester, students were complaining about the air quality of the Corcoran building with all the construction that's been going on for a couple of years now. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and if that that is still weighing on students' minds? Sure. So construction started in summer of 2016 as part of the university's $80 million effort to revamp the flag building at 17th and E Streets. Some of the specific problems students were complaining about, their asthma being aggravated by silica dust in the air. They were complaining about cockroaches and fleas. There were construction noises during class that were disrupting lessons. What are students doing in response to all of these problems? So in response to these issues, a lot of students have said that they want to transfer either to another university or to another school within GW. So one student that I spoke to said that she's going to transfer to the Ringling College of Arts and Design in Sarasota, Florida. Another former student that I spoke to transferred to the University of New Mexico at Albuquerque. And then one student that I spoke to, she is transferring to Elliott. And another student, he's transferring to SMPA. Thanks for letting us know about the issues that the Corcoran's having, Parth, and we'll keep an eye on it. Sure, thanks. We are approaching the end of University President LeBlanc's first year at GW, and our senior news editor, Andrew Goudsward, has come to talk a little bit about what his year was like and how faculty and staff are reacting to what he's done so far. Hello, thank you for having me on. You had an interview with President LeBlanc last week. What was kind of his impression of his first year? He seemed to feel pretty good about how things were going. He started off talking a lot about how the fall semester was really about establishing his place here in the university and going on what he called a, a listening tour of students and faculty and staff and hearing about what the issues were and what they wanted the leadership to be focusing on. And then now in the second semester, he's starting to take a little bit more action and lay the groundwork for, for future plans that he's he's looking to take in these five big areas that he's identified and talked about extensively. You said the second semester, he focused more on taking some action on the things that he said he would Is there anything that stood out to him as something he was really proud of? Well, he mentioned the first substantial action that he took was to move the student library fee from being automatically put on a tuition bill to a system where now a student has to purposely check a box to make that student library fee. Other things are the the new dining plan. Um, There was a big change back in February to make sure that students next year will have a meal plan that's based on their kitchen. I mean, they'll have a lot more to spend on dining, and that was based on food insecurity concerns that were raised throughout the year, as well as changes to the Colonial Health Center, which were recently announced. Um, Another long sort of griped about aspect about the university, you know, students had concerns about the way the center was run, and they announced um, changes last month designed to kind of fix some of those issues and and start the process of of making sure that students have more, more trust in the health center. Are those the kind of things that stood out to faculty and staff as well, or did they kind of see other areas that they were excited about the president taking steps on? Yeah, those worries, I mean, faculty and staff did mention the student experience as being a very important part of LeBlanc's agenda and a lot of the things that he's focused on the first year, but more directly, faculty are invested in things like research, especially, which there have been similar issues to student experience and, and, and a lot of ways in the years past, because faculty have felt that the 
systems and processes in place for researchers are kind of frustrating and complicated. So the research end was really something that faculty were very much happy to see. Also, the institutional culture aspect was another big thing for faculty. Um, so LeBlanc has talked about the need kind of university-wide to fix systems and processes and make sure that students and faculty and staff feel the university is more of a welcoming place for them and feel that when they have to go to get something from the university that it will not be kind of an arduous process for them. And so that was something that kind of across the board people were excited to see, but especially faculty. Charles Garris, who was the former head of the faculty executive committee, so that that was kind of the, the signature thing that LeBlanc should be able to accomplish in his presidency is to be able to switch to a more service-oriented and friendly campus at GW. And as well as making his list of priorities and then taking action on some of those priorities, this year has been a year of departures at the administrative level, and LeBlanc has filled some, he's lost some people. How has he kind of built his team and said that he made those important administrative personnel decisions. Yes, so a number of really long-time administrators have stepped down this academic year. You have Lou Katz, the executive vice president and treasurer. Then you have Leo Chalupa, who was the first vice president of research. And then, of course, Peter Konworski, the vice provost and dean of student affairs. So these were really signature roles and, and very visible administrators to, to students, faculty, and staff here that have stepped down. LeBlanc has replaced Lou Katz. He has not yet replaced, and they're in the process right now of, of conducting a search for the Dean of the Student Experience, which will be a little bit of a different role than Konworski, but sort of his functional replacement. And he's turned to the University of Miami for a number of the, the people that he's bringing in. And he's been bringing in new people to the areas that he's really put a focus on, student affairs and research and the financial aspects of the university as well. This has obviously not been the easiest year that it could have been for President LeBlanc. He has faced some controversy, especially earlier in the spring. And how has he said that he's kind of fared with those? Yeah, well, obviously, as, as we've talked about extensively here, back in February, there was a, a racist incident, um, a Snapchat post featuring members of a sorority, and that became kind of the first real crisis of the LeBlanc presidency. And then, not to say he got sidetracked, but this issue came in and it came top of importance for, and you know, immediately, because it had created such an, an uproar here on campus. And so President LeBlanc did, did react pretty much right away. Within a week, there was a list of nine diversity measures that they were going to to take to improve the campus racial climate, as well as kind of build long-term measures in place to prevent incidents like this from happening again. And so, yeah, that was something that, um, in talking to experts, that university presidents, a lot of times, they set an agenda, but it oftentimes ends up becoming reactive because you're reacting to the things that happen around you, you're reacting to the crises and the issues that come up while you're trying to build this sort of larger vision. Something that President LeBlanc said when he first came to the university was that he kind of wanted to be a more transparent leader. And how has that really played out this year? And have faculty and staff seen that reflected in the way that he's led the university? In terms of his style, I think there was pretty broad agreement that he has been more transparent and more direct. Um, you know, he came in talking right away about the the issues that he was hearing and that he was seeing in a lot of the areas that we had talked about previously. And that was something that a lot of people felt that it wasn't necessarily the case in years past in the way that in this first year that LeBlanc coming in. And so I think that that's sort of the way that they see that transparency coming in. Thanks for summing up President LeBlanc's year, Andrew. Yeah, thank you for having me. Always great to be on.
Danny is here this week to talk about another lawsuit against the university. This time it's a class action lawsuit. And Danny, what are these people alleging that the university did? So what the plaintiffs are alleging is that the university has breached their fiduciary duties under certain income security acts. Basically, it means that the university has not been acting in the interest of its staff and faculty when considering different retirement plans. And so how has that affected the plaintiffs? The plaintiffs are saying that there are so many different retirement plans offered by the university. They specifically cite an array of more than 130 different options. Providing all of these different options for university faculty and staff is putting an extra burden on those members because they have to go through all of the options themselves and determine which is the best for them. And these faculty members don't always have the time or the financial assets to hire a manager to help them decide which one is best for them. Is this a fight that the plaintiffs can win? A lot of experts are saying that the case will most likely be settled because the university will not want to spend extra money on taking this case further through the court. But a university response said that they plan to vigorously defend themselves in court. How has the university responded to this lawsuit? University spokeswoman Lindsay Hamilton said that the university plans to firmly defend itself in court. They said the university provides its retirement plan participants with competitive savings programs and offers them this wide array of investment options to assist them with making different investment choices. According to experts, is the argument that this class of people are making, is that a legitimate argument? So Professor Stein also commented on this, saying that giving people too many options freezes people's ability to make decisions, and that there is a lot of academic research that says with too many choices, people often make worse decisions. Thanks for coming to talk to us about the lawsuit today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. I'm here with Matt, our contributing culture editor, who's here to tell us about students who are getting involved in the music scene. Yeah. Hi, Leah. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Tell me what's going on with this group of students. So the do-it-yourself music scene is also known as DIY, is a type of independent kind of music culture that is outside of your usual venues. You wouldn't see the people who are in this scene like rocking out at 930, so to speak. These musicians are often students, and so these students that we talked to, they host uh, concerts out of their own apartment. And so I attended one of these concerts, and it was sweaty. It was full of college students who were jamming out and bobbing their heads, and it was like I didn't know these places existed so close to campus. How did this get started? How did these students start bringing these artists? So they moved into this apartment space in August, but Ben from Above the Bayou, which is the venue's name, told me that the apartment had actually had previous GW tenants who also hosted shows out of the same space. And he said that it could be traced back to like the 90s of this place like being a spot where you would host shows. The three roommates who live there are all involved in music in some way. They are varying in their degrees of, you know, attachment to the DIY scene, but they all assist in booking artists from both out of state and local bands to come to their shows. And Ben told me he hosts a show a week, pretty much, with finals. It dies down a little bit, but even then, like, they have three, four shows a month, 
and there are usually three or four artists on the bill. The shows average 80 to 100 concert goers sometime. I, when I went, it was not so crazy. It wasn't too crowded, but you could definitely feel the intimacy. How do these students find these musicians? Are they reaching out to them or are the musicians coming to them? I think that they've had a lot of help gaining ground through the connections that they have with other musicians. And one of the people I interviewed named Rob Klein, who is an SMPA and is also a vocalist and guitarist in the band nowadays. He assists in booking and promotes the shows through, you know, flyers, around campus through a Facebook page that he made. I'll meet people who are like, oh, like I knew people who did this back home or I, I did this back home, you know, and like just didn't know it was happening at GW, which is why I like started that online space. And I think those online spaces are the key because every tour I've ever booked and like most of our shows have been like done through connections made on online spaces. Can you give me some examples of what types of artists have kind of come through this apartment? So the two students I interviewed said that they hear a lot of indie rock come into the space, but they are always looking to break new ground with new artists. They've had like spoken word poetry at the events. And I think they've had like Rob has played other DIY spaces with like rap artists and like a whole number of, of different genres and things that he says like they've never heard before. And you said you actually went to one of these shows. Can you describe the space for us? This is a kind of down low space to protect the sanctity of the project. We're not disclosing the location, but when I got there, I could hear the music on the street and the door was wide open and you went up three flights of stairs and there were people greeting you at the door and asking for a suggested donation for the touring bands. And when you got in, it was like a small little hallway and then the living room, which had a ton of posters and a ton of signage, like dozens of bands' signatures on the walls in like this district flag mural kind of on one side of the wall and a chalkboard wall on the other. And it was so like, it was so indie. And they have like these jigsaw mats kind of cushioning the floor. And Ben told me that there was like soundproofing underneath that. And he tells me, Ben tells me that there are intimate moments where people are just sitting on the floor and taking in the kind of acoustic experience. But I think there are also definitely plenty of moments of raucous roughhousing and broken glass and and holes in doors and and things like that so um you get a little bit of both in that space well thanks for chatting with me about this matt anytime leah that's all for this week thanks for joining us on getting to the bottom of it getting to the bottom of it is hosted by news editors meredith roten and leah potter and features contributing culture editor matt dines This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell, and managing editor Tyler Loveless. And music is produced by Olk Studio. And thanks to Nowadays for providing music. Special thanks to Andrew Goudsward, Danny Grace, and Parth Kotak for joining us. See you next week.